I've had to make statements like this too many times. Pacifica Radios, KPFK in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, and coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation. Radio or not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and many more, including Radio Sputnik five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Difficult week, I'll say that. Uh, we will be speaking in uh, in a few minutes with Adam Briggle of FrackFreeDenton.com on uh, really a remarkable story, a remarkable story of uh, the fight for democracy down in Texas and uh, the folks in that small town who banned fracking only to be uh, overturned by the big government tyrannical conservatives. And that's in quotes, conservatives, uh, the Republicans who, who run the state of Texas and uh, the fight against the ban on fracking bans down there in the Lone Star State. Looking forward to that conversation with Adam Briggle. Also, Desi Doyen will be joining us for the uh, Green News Report, which we had to put off yesterday due to breaking news events uh, in, in uh, South Carolina, which we will be again talking about today. She'll be with us to talk about the uh, the Pope's encyclical and much more, including, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> just for laughs, uh, Donald Trump's uh, entrance into the presidential race and his position on climate change. Hint, he thinks it's a hoax. But first, before we get to all of that, in April of 2009, not long after the Obama administration had taken office, a draft report by the Department of Homeland Security was released warning about the dangers of homegrown right-wing extremism. It was entitled, Right-Wing Extremism, Current Economic and Political Climate Fueling Resurgence in Radicalization and Recruitment. The work on that report had begun during the Bush administration, and it followed on the heels of an earlier report that was released without incident just a few months earlier, January of 2009. I think it was before uh, Barack Obama had even uh, taken office. That was about left-wing extremism. Nobody, nobody objected to the release of that report. But this nine-page uh, draft DHS report, which had leaked out, had cautioned about the reemergence of potentially violent extremist groups quote, that are mainly anti-government, rejecting federal authority in favor of state or local authority, or rejecting government authority entirely. 
The report warned that similar conditions to those in the 1990s, an economic recession, a Democrat in the White House, which had led to, among other domestic terrorist incidents during the 90s, that 1995 bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, those similar conditions had brought about a, a, quote, growth in the number of domestic right-wing terrorists and extremist groups and an increase in violent acts targeting government facilities, law enforcement officers, banks, and infrastructure sectors. The draft report from April of 2009 cautioned that lone wolves and small terrorist cells embracing violent right-wing extremist ideology are the most dangerous domestic terrorism threat in the U.S., and it concluded that right-wing extremism is likely to grow in strength. That was April of 2009, and the right in this country, Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, and therefore the Republican Party, went nuts. They were so upset about that report, not about the one about left-wing extremists, just the ones about right-wing extremists. They were so upset about it that they bullied the Obama administration into retracting the report. At that point, it was not difficult to get the cowardly Obama administration to do such a thing, particularly at that time. And, of course, they pulled that report and it disappeared forever. After the shooting at the uh, Mother Emanuel AME Church in, South, in uh, South Carolina, in Charleston, South Carolina, on Wednesday night, Republican Governor Nikki Haley took to Facebook and she uh, posted this message. She wrote, Michael, Rena, Nalen, and I are praying for the victims and families touched by tonight's senseless tragedy at Emanuel AME Church. While we do not yet know all of the details, we do know that we'll never understand what motivates anyone to enter one of our places of worship and take the life of another. We'll never understand what motivates anyone to do this. She wrote, Please join us in lifting up the victims and their families with our love and prayers. One of the respond, uh, respondents to that message on Facebook, a guy by the name of Devin Goldenberg, I don't know who he is, but he wrote, we do, know, we do know what motivated this troubled young man. In his own words, it was his racist delusions and hate. We do know what and who enabled him. Clearly, he's been spurred on by right-wing broadcasters and politicians, the we-want-our-country-back crowd. For you, Governor, to say we'll never know is testimony to your lack of courage and insight. You're so afraid to stand up against the forces that motivated and enabled these murders that you spout a mealy-mouthed prayers and sympathies note. You are a profile and cowardice, wrote Devin Goldenberg. And, of course, you'll notice that after we see uh, other killings, other shootings, other terrorist attacks that involve Islamic extremists, of course, the folks on the right, know exactly what, uh, what causes that. They hate us. They hate our freedom. They hate us for who we are. But in this, in this case, we'll never know. We'll never know what motivates someone to do it, according to Governor Nikki Haley. At least on the night of this, uh, this attack. Jeb Bush was asked today, two days after the, uh, uh, after the attack, he was asked if the shooting was racially motivated. He said, quote, I don't know. Really? Really, Governor, you don't know? You're running for president of the United States and you don't know? You don't know even after all that has been reported about this? 
Rick Santorum and Senator Lindsey Graham, who are also both seeking the 2016 Republican nomination for president of the United States, said that they believed that the attack was an anti-Christian attack. Never mind that this uh, uh, now-confessed shooter drove hundreds of miles to get to this specific church, which has been at the center of the civil rights movement in this country for, frankly, hundreds of years. But they saw it as an an anti-Christian attack, not a black attack. Not right-wing extremism. Senator Graham... Uh, comparing uh, his statements about the attack in Boston, the Boston bombing in 2013, Senator Lindsey Graham demanded that the government do everything it could to learn from that attack in order to prevent future attacks. He said at the time, this man, about uh, Jokart Tsarnaev, he said, uh, this man, in my view, should be designated as a potential enemy combatant, and we should uh, be allowed to question him for intelligence-gathering purposes to find out about future attacks and terrorist organizations that may exist that he has knowledge of and that the evidence cannot be used uh, and that evidence and that evidence cannot be used against him in trial. That evidence is used to protect us as a nation, he said about the Boston uh, bomber. Senator Lindsey Graham's reaction to Wednesday's attack on a black church in his own in his own home state of South Carolina was very different. Senator Graham said, quote, I just think he was one of these whacked-out kids. I don't think it's anything broader than that. It's about a young man who is obviously twisted. That's all. We don't need to torture him. We don't need to worry about future attacks. We don't need to worry about organizations he might have been involved in. That was Senator Lindsey Graham's response to this attack in his home state. Senator Lindsey Graham, I'll remind you, is running for the presidential nomination in the Republican Party. Now, to his credit, Graham has since decided that, yes, the shooting would not have happened if the victims weren't black. On Thursday, Graham called the Charleston shooting a hate crime. He admitted that, quote, the only reason these people are dead is because they're black, although I don't think he called it a terrorist attack for some odd reason. As so many on the right are consistently critical of the Obama administration for not doing, for not doing immediately after attack by Islamic Islamic extremists. Although, by the way, Obama actually does call them acts of terror in most of those cases. In the case of the Emanuel AME shooting, the now-confessed shooter, Daryl Roth, reportedly said he came to the church to shoot black people. A witness reportedly said he claimed he had to do it because black people, quote, are raping our women and are taking over this country. Could this be any clearer? Yes, this was an act of terror. We do know what motivates such people, despite what Governor Nikki Haley said and despite what folks like Santorum and Fox News have been trying to say that this was an attack on Christianity because, you know, they must always be the victims. Moreover, had the right not played the victim when the 2009 Department of Homeland Security uh, report came out, Nikki Haley and others on the right might know a lot more about what motivates this kind of attack. And so many others. Far more attacks than, uh, that are far more deadly than attacks by Muslim extremists in this country. From an op-ed in the New York Times earlier uh, in the week, before the shooting, before the terrorist attack in Charleston, 
Charles Kurtzman and David Shanzer wrote, The main terrorist threat in the United States is not from violent extremists, but from far right-wing extremists. Just ask the police. In a survey we conducted with the Police Executive Research Forum last year, of 382 law enforcement agencies, 74% reported anti-government extremists as one of the top three terrorist threats in their jurisdiction. 39%, just 39%, listed extremis, uh, extremism connected with al-Qaeda or like-minded terrorist organizations. Only 3% identified the threat from Muslim extremists as severe. They go on to give a few examples, and just a very few. Last year, uh, a man who identified with a sovereign citizen movement, which claims not to recognize the authority of federal or local government, attacked a courthouse in, For in Forsyth County, Georgia, firing an assault rifle at police officers and trying to cover his approach with tear gas and smoke grenades. The suspect was killed by the police who returned fire. In Nevada, anti-government militants reportedly walked up to and shot two police officers at a restaurant, then placed a Don't Tread on Me flag on their bodies. An anti-government extremist in Pennsylvania was arrested on suspicion of shooting two state's troopers, killing one of them before leading authorities on a 48-day manhunt. A right-wing militant in Texas declared a revolution and was arrested on suspicion of attempting to rob an armored car in an order to buy weapons and explosives and attack law enforcement. These individuals on the fringes of right-wing politics increasingly worry law enforcement officials, according to Kurtzman and Shanzer in The New York Times. And that's just a couple of examples. Since 2000, they write, 25 law enforcement officers have been killed by right-wing extremists who share a fear that government will confiscate firearms and a belief in the approaching collapse of government and the economy. Since 9-11, they say, an average of nine American Muslims per year have been involved in an average of six terrorism plots against targets in the U.S. Most were disrupted. But the 20 plots that were carried out account for 50 fatalities over the past 13 and a half years. In contrast, right-wing extremists average 337 attacks per year in the decade since 9-11, causing a total of 254 fatalities. The toll has increased since the study was released in 2012 when there was only 254 fatalities in the U.S. from right-wing extremism. Meanwhile, they write, terrorism of all forms has accounted for a tiny proportion of violence in America. There have been more than 215,000 murders in the U.S. since 9-11. Let me repeat that. 215,000 murders in the U.S. since 9-11. For every person killed by Muslim extremists, there have been 4,300 homicides from other threats in this country. As state and local police agencies remind us, right-wing extremism is the leading source of ideological violence in America. According to this uh, study discussed by uh, Charles Kurtzman and David Schanzer in the New York Times over this past week before the shooting. Now, in the case of the Emanuel AME shooting, the now-confessed shooter uh, who said, who admitted that he came to shoot black people because they are raping our women, they are taking over our country. This has been a, a, a long cry of racism. These are some of the things that were discussed in that report that was pulled back by the DHS in 2009 because Republicans and the right wing objected so uh, strenuously about it.
Back in July of 2011, two and a half years after that report was pulled, just days after the massacre of 77 mostly children at a youth summer camp by a right-wing extremist in Norway, Brian Levin, the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, interviewed Daryl Johnson. He was formerly uh, from the Department of Homeland Security. He was uh, the agency's senior domestic terrorism analyst from 2004 to 2010 and the lead author of that DHS draft report. Brian Levin interviewed him. Here's a, a bit from that interview. He was asked, did you have a political agenda when writing the DHS right-wing extremism report? Uh, Daryl Johnson replied, no, my team and I analyzed the entire spectrum of extremist movements within the U.S. Our work was all about uh, identifying extremist threats, understanding the radicalization process, and informing law enforcement of emerging extremist trends in the U.S. Do you have any political antagonism toward conservatives, uh, military veterans, or religious people, he was asked? Absolutely not. I'm a conservative. I'm married, have children. I am a lifetime third-generation registered Republican. I have military veterans in my extended family. This was the author of the DHS report on right-wing extremism that was pulled due to the objections of Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, and the Republicans. The author was asked, do you support a broad right uh, to individual gun ownership by competent non-felons? He says, yes, I'm a gun owner myself. I enjoy target shooting and experienced uh, game hunting in my youth. Do you support limited federal government and broad autonomy for states? Yes, but I believe there's an important role for federal law enforcement. He confirmed that the research for this report began in 2008 under the Bush administration, not under that radical leftist who wants to take away your guns in the Obama administration. And then he was asked, why, uh, why was he willing to be interviewed about this now? Well, he said he couldn't discuss it when he was employed with the DHS. It took him a year after leaving to finally decide that it was the right thing to do to speak out. And he wanted to give DHS adequate time to determine whether or not it wanted to reconstitute the domestic non-Islamic terrorism effort, which was completely dismantled after the objections of the right-wingers. He noted at the time, and remember, this was uh, middle of uh, 2011, three and a half years ago. He noted that since Obama took office, there have been nearly 20 extremist right-wing attacks and plots, including the killing of almost a dozen police officers in, separate, in six separate attacks. There have been militia plots in places like Alaska and Michigan that targeted government officials, package bombs mailed in the D.C. area. Sovereign citizen shooting related uh, citizen related shootings at Florida, Arizona, Texas. He said at the time there was just six people who worked directly for him on the team at DHS working on that report. At the same time, there were close to 40 working on Muslim extremism. You get the idea. Uh, after that uh, uh, report was pulled. Uh, the entire uh, unit was dismantled. The team was dissolved, he said. All training courses and briefing presentations were stopped. DHS leaders made it increasingly difficult to release another report on the topic. The subject had simply become too politically charged. But, he said, the factors that led to the report were still in place. And they, of course, are still in place now, as witnessed in, South, in Charleston, South Carolina.
Since uh, he did that interview, uh, he came out a year later, talked about uh, more and more uh, law enforcement officers who had been shot, uh, more race-based uh, uh, attacks, terrorist attacks. Over a dozen mosques had been burned with firebombs attributed to those embracing uh, anti-Islamic beliefs. He lists one after another after another. And then, of course, uh, anybody, you know, blame anybody uh, but the people who carried this out. But the person in this case who, who has confessed to carrying this out. You can even blame, uh, if you listen to the National Rifle Association's board member, Charles Cotton, it's the fault of uh, State Senator Clemente Pinckney, the reverend of the AME Church, who was murdered in this terrorist attack on Wednesday. It was his fault. According to Cotton of the National Rifle Association, uh, he wrote on a, on a gun forum, eight of his church members who might be alive if he had expressly allowed members to carry handguns in church are dead. Innocent people died because of Clementa Pinckney's political position on the issues. Yes, it's his own fault that he is dead. According to longtime NRA board member, Charles Cotton. People who have listened to this show uh, for a long time know my feelings about the uh, NRA. They are just about as close as you can get to a terrorist organization, frankly. They certainly support terrorists in this country. They have fought to make sure that terrorists, uh, people on the, uh, on the no-fly list, are still able to buy guns. And we haven't even gotten into the race issue very deeply. So for that... I'll turn to John Stewart, who uh, didn't write any jokes. This was a Thursday night. Uh, how John Stewart began the Daily Show. I have I have one job, and it's a pretty simple job. Uh, I come in in the morning, and we look at the news, and I write jokes about it, and then I make a couple of faces and a like a like a noise, like a and uh, and then it's just cha-ching, and I'm out the door. <laughs> Um, but I, I didn't do my job today. I didn't, so I apologize. I got nothing for you in terms of like jokes and sounds uh, because of, of what happened in South Carolina. And maybe if I wasn't nearing the end of the run or this wasn't such a common occurrence, maybe uh, I could have pulled out of the spiral, but I didn't. And so I honestly have, have nothing uh, other than just sadness, once again, that we have to peer into the abyss of the depraved violence that we do to each other and the nexus of a just gaping racial wound that will not heal, yet we pretend doesn't exist. And uh, I'm confident, though, that by acknowledging it, by staring into that and seeing it for what it is, we still won't do jack <laughs> Yeah. That's us. And that's the part that blows my mind. I don't want to get into the political argument of the guns and things, but what, what blows my mind is the disparity of response between when we think people that are foreign are going to kill us and us killing ourselves. If this had been what we thought was Islamic terrorism, it would fit into our, we, we invaded two countries. 
and spent trillions of dollars and thousands of American lives and now fly uh, uh, unmanned death machines over like five or six different countries, all to keep Americans safe. That's got it. We got to do whatever we can. We'll torture people. We got to do whatever we can to keep Americans safe. Nine people shot in a church. What about that? Hey, what are you going to do? Crazy is as crazy is, right? That's the part that I cannot, for the life of me, wrap my head around. And you know it. You know that it's going to go down the same path. This is a terrible tragedy. They're already using uh, uh, the nuanced language of lack of effort for this. This is a terrorist attack. This is a, a violent attack on the Emanuel Church in South Carolina, which is a symbol uh, for the black community. It has stood uh, in that part of Charleston for a hundred and some years and has been attacked viciously many times, as many black churches have. And to pretend that, I, I heard someone on the news say, well, tragedy has visited this church. This, this wasn't a tornado. This was a racist. This was a guy with a Rhodesia badge on his sweater. And, you know, so the idea that we're, you know, I hate to even use this pun, but this one is black and white. It's, there's no nuance here. This is, uh, and, and we're going to keep pretending like, I don't get it. What happened? This one guy lost his mind. But this, we are steeped in that culture in this country, and we refuse to recognize it. And I cannot believe how hard people are working to discount it. Uh, in South Carolina, the roads that black people drive on are named for Confederate generals who fought to keep black people from being able to drive freely on that road. That's, that's insanity. That's racial wallpaper. That's, that's, you can't allow that. You know, nine people were shot in a black church by a white guy who hated them, who wanted to start some kind of civil war. The Confederate flag flies over South Carolina, and the roads are named for Confederate generals. And the white guy's the one who feels like his country's being taken away from him. We're bringing it on ourselves. And that's the thing. Al-Qaeda, all those guys, ISIS, they're not compared to the damage that we can apparently do to ourselves on a regular basis. So. Uh, Sorry about no jokes. I'm sorry, too. That was John Stewart Thursday night on The Daily Show. This is Brad Friedman on today's Bradcast. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate 
to help us out today. Ah, okay. Trying to shake things off here. Uh, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Uh, let's take a break from South Carolina for a minute to, uh, to get down to uh, lying, cheating, cowardly uh, politicians down in Texas for a change. <laughs> That'll cheer us all up. Um, AP is reporting this week that leaders of a North Texas university town that was the first in the state to ban hydraulic fracturing repealed the voter-approved measure early Wednesday, sounding a tone of capitulation to the state's powerful oil and gas interests after a seven-month battle. We've talked uh, on this show and on the Green News Report about uh, Denton, Texas, passing uh, a voter initiative to ban fracking in the town. But now, uh, after the state has said, nope, you can't do that, well, the city council seems to be saying, okay, we won't. Why? We'll find out in a moment. The Denton City Council called it a strategic repeal of that uh, voter initiative that would undermine lawsuits by the Texas General Land Office and the Texas Oil and Gas Association shortly after the ban was passed. Adam Briggle of the frack-free Denton movement said fracking opponents are taking the fight statewide by pushing for the repeal of HB 40, which is the law Governor Greg Abbott just signed last month, barring local ordinances that prevent fracking and other oil and natural gas activities harmful to the environment unless they are deemed commercially reasonable. I guess that's whatever uh, the governor decides is commercially reasonable. Initially, it was about health and safety and protecting our neighborhoods, and those continue to be our goals, but it's now also about democracy and supporting people's voices and their votes, Adam Briggle said. Despite a corporate-backed ban to quash the initiative, voters in Denton, 40 miles north of Dallas, approved the ban last November. About 60 municipalities in Texas, the nation's biggest oil and gas-producing state, have some form of ordinance on the books limiting drilling or fracking, according to the Texas Municipal League. And this is the part, frankly, that drives me the most crazy. In signing the law, Abbott said he was protecting private property rights from the, quote, heavy hand of local regulation. <sighs> Joining me now is Adam Briggle. He is an associate professor at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, which, by the way, is uh, the setting for the beginning of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, for, for those who know what I'm talking about. It, and it's also the setting for where uh, Desi and I were rear-ended by an 18-wheeler a few years back, but I won't blame that on Professor Briggle. Uh, he holds a Ph.D. in Environmental Studies from the University of Colorado at Boulder, his research and teaching focuses on the intersection of ethics and policy with science and technology. He's also set to publish a new book in October called A Field Philosopher's Guide to Fracking. And he's the president of the Grassroots Denton Drilling Awareness Group and leads the frack-free Denton campaign to ban hydraulic fracturing in Denton's city limits. You can learn more about that movement at frackfreedenton.com. Professor Briggle, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. Uh, well, I appreciate the work that you are doing down there. Take us back to the original fracking ban in Denton before we get up to the latest. Uh, 
How did that band come about, and was that the first of its kind in, in Texas? Well, there are other Texas municipalities that prohibit uh, oil and gas extraction activities, but none of them are areas where the industry would like to set up shop anyways. So Denton really is the first place to ban fracking uh, on an active shale play. And what brought it about, uh, in a nutshell, is that we had worked for several years trying to get the industry to comply with some reasonable regulations. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have 281 gas wells in our city limits, so we have a long experience with this. But they kept pressing closer and closer to more densely populated areas of town. Mm. And the last straw really was that they claimed they didn't have to follow any of our local regulations because they were grandfathered under rules written way before anybody knew much about fracking at all. And so they didn't have to pay attention to the revisions we wanted to make in light of uh, new experience and knowledge. So that's what led to the ban. It's really important to, to know that it was a last-ditch effort after years of trying to accommodate the industry. It was not a, a knee-jerk reaction on our part at all. So you guys tried to work with them. Were they willing to uh, work with you in any way? Or basically they were just sort of leading you on, uh, you know, trying to keep drilling as long as they could? Uh, yeah, basically there was no um, spirit of compromise on their part. You know, they were, I was leading a group that was advising city council to try to put more robust protections in place for health and safety while still accommodating mineral development. Mm-hmm. And all along they were writing to city council things like, you can't do that because of Texas local government chapter 245, which says that we're vested under old rules, or you can't do that because the mineral estate predominates the surface estate or you can't do that because the state preempts you from doing that. Every single roadblock they could throw in the way is what they did. That was basically their game, their, their game plan. And so you guys in Denton, you organize, you get an initiative on the on the local ballot there last November, I guess November 2014. It, it passes. I know you came up against a lot of, was there a lot of uh, uh, corporate uh, money fighting this, uh, fighting this initiative last November? Yeah, I mean, it was a true David and Goliath story, and one that has restored my faith in the power of grassroots democracy. Mm. Uh, they, the industry threw $1.1 million into the campaign against the fracking ban. I mean, the previous largest amount of money spent in the municipal election cycle was $30,000, so this just blew it out of all proportion. We were able to raise about $75,000, so about $1 for every 15 they had. Wow. And 95% of our money came from local Denton residents. About 0.2% of their money came from local Denton residents. So wow. it was, a you know, all the cards were stacked against us. Um, Chamber of Commerce, the Republican Party um, it came out. Uh, even the paper came out opposed to us. But when it came down to the election by the people, you know, the real residents of Denton, uh, we carried the day 59% to 41%. 59 49 uh, 41 you you destroyed them <laughs> that's that's not even close 1.1 million dollars yeah. uh, of the corporate money versus 75,000 and you guys win 59 41 amazing okay so that passes in November uh, and then was it the courts or the state legislature or both that ended up overriding the the ban and f- finding that your ban. What, what did they find? That your ban was illegal. That uh, uh, c- cities are not allowed to have a say on whether their, uh, their their oil and gas will be fracked. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a 
stark example of the naked political corruption down in Austin. What happened is they, we were sued the morning after the ban passed, but folks in the industry and folks down in Austin, they knew that there was a very good chance that our ban was actually constitutional and defensible under the laws in place at the time. So what they did is the industry went to the legislators that they have bought and paid for, and they wrote a new law for them to change the rules, essentially. And they just basically bought a new law that changed the standards by which you evaluate the constitutionality of local ordinances. So for 85 years, the standard has been set by courts so that I call a community reasonable standard, which is you begin from health and safety concerns, you defer to the judgment of local governments about what they need to do to protect their citizens, and you set a high bar for the industry to establish that those are unreasonable rules. Well, HB 40 flips that script entirely on its head. You begin from the commercial interests of the industry, and whatever they say is necessary to protect their bottom line is the primary consideration, and that becomes a new standard. And, and so, so that's what happened here. And, and that was so they were basing that judgment that uh, this ban was uh, had to be overturned. They were basing it on the constitution, the Texas state constitution, on their own unique, fresh, new interpretation of that constitution, I guess. Uh, but now they've actually passed an actual law, an actual statute that says what? Uh, yeah, HB, HB 40, it expressly preempts municipalities from regulating oil and gas activity. That means that they are trumped from doing so by the state government, except for certain surface activities. But even in the cases where they can regulate surface activities, they have to be commercially reasonable, as defined by the industry. So basically, the industry is setting the standards for what's acceptable for cities to do. The, the industry decides what is and isn't commercially, commercially reasonable? Yeah, that standard is derived from what's called a, a reasonable and prudent operator's perspective. Um, but yeah, it's derived from the perspective of the industry. Wow, that's that's extraordinary. Uh, it just gives all control over to the industry, uh, it, it seems. Uh, ha- has there been... Um uh, has has there been issues in Denton? Uh, you know, we've heard about uh, earthquake swarms in, uh, in in Oklahoma and in Texas. Is that something that you guys have had to deal with directly down there, or uh, air pollution, uh, water pollution? Is have you guys seen you know direct concerns from the existing two hundred and eighty one wells that are are uh, as of last year were being drilled down there and fracked down there, or is this just a preemptive concern? Uh, about the the problems related to fracking? No, we definitely have had direct negative impacts from this activity. Um, many of them have to do with industrialization of neighborhoods, uh, street, uh, increased truck traffic on our streets, nuisances, noise, and light pollution. Our biggest concerns here are the air pollution that come off of these sites. We have folks experiencing health symptoms like nosebleeds, uh, asthma-like symptoms, nausea, and headaches who live in proximity to these sites. We haven't had earthquakes really in Denton, but we've had them very close by. One of the things that HB 40 does is prohibit cities from regulating injection wells that cause earthquakes. So one of the ironies was right when folks were suffering from earthquakes around here, the legislature took away their ability to control uh, that activity. Mm-hmm. And we're also concerned about water quality mm-hmm. here. On the outskirts of town, here in Denton, people are, are on well water. 
And we've got plenty of stories here of, of folks experiencing their, their water go cloudy and oily after fracking activity, which is something that we're now getting evidence both from the EPA and a new study out of uh, UT Arlington that's uh, beginning to really confirm fracking, fracking does indeed cause water pollution. And, and you know, and that's one of the things that's amazing to uh, to me, and just kind of drove me nuts when I saw what Governor Abbott had to say in signing this law that he was quote unquote protecting private property rights from the quote heavy hand of local regulations. Now I want to talk about those local regulations and the uh, hypocrisy there, the heavy hand of local regulations. I want to talk about that hypocrisy in a moment. But what about protecting the private rights? Of the people you mentioned that use well water, that all of a sudden their well water looks, uh, uh, you know, poisoned or, or cloudy at best. Do those private property rights have any protection in state law or Denton law at this point? Well, you you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, the the institution of private property comes with a correlative duty to respect the property rights of other people, and he only ever tells half the story, which is mineral property owners. And because of the severance of the surface and mineral estates, many of the people who own the minerals do not live in Denton. And if you look at the money extracted from underneath the soil of Denton, uh, only about 1% belongs to actual Denton residents. Uh, This is amazing to me. And then, uh, so Abbott talks about the heavy hand of local regulations. This after years of Republicans calling for local control. They you know, no more big government. The people uh, on the ground closest to these issues, they can decide. Do folks like Greg Abbott and the Republicans down there really say that stuff with a straight face, the, uh, the heavy hand of local regulations? And does anybody actually buy it down there in Denton, Texas, particularly the people who are directly uh, affected by this? Well, no, nobody's directly affected by by that argument. And no, no, I, directly, I mean, dire- directly affected by the, uh, you know, the, the fracking that's going down, going on down there. Do they hear, you know, Abbott uh, talking about, you know, the heavy hand of local regulations and say, oh, well, that's true. We don't want the, we don't want that. That's what I mean by people affected. Right. No, no, uh, no. Nobody's saying that it's it's uh, I guess it would be humorous if it wasn't so serious. The, the implications of this kind of hypocrisy that's going on. You know, and and, uh, the bipartisan nature of the vote for the fracking ban is really important. Seventy percent of straight party Republican voters voted for the ban. It cuts across party lines because it's just a common sense land use regulation policy. I mean, there's no other industry that's allowed to set up shop inside of neighborhoods. In fact, we don't even allow bakeries to set up in neighborhoods because it's considered an incompatible land use. So it really comes down to just common sense. It, yeah, it sure does. All right, so the the local ban, uh, it passed last year. It's overturned based on uh, some perverse interpretation of the state con- constitution. And uh, now the state legislature passes a law essentially saying fracking bans are banned. So it bans fracking bans. Uh, and now the Denton City Council this week uh, oh, actually overturns that voter-approved initiative as a strategic move. What is the strategic move that the city council is, is trying to do in, in strategically repealing that, uh, that ban that was already sort of overridden by the state? Yeah, I'm glad you asked, because this is a bit complex, but it's really important. Because of the existing lawsuits that were filed the morning after we passed the ban, 
That's why this came up, because we need to find a way to get out of those lawsuits now. Nobody denies that HB 40 makes the ban ordinance unenforceable. Mm-hmm. But the Texas Oil and Gas Association and the General Land Office were pursuing these lawsuits nonetheless. And they, what they wanted to do, okay, is they wanted the court to issue a ruling that would then give some legal precedent and some legal stature to HB 40. Because right now, all HB 40 is, is the sort of zany, rotten fruit of a political corrupt process. But once you give it some, uh, the imprimatur of a court's ruling, Mm -hmm. that can injure the ability of other cities to challenge HB 40. Mm. And so, you know, nobody around here liked the idea of repealing our ban. But it was the best of really bad options, because really the other option was an almost certain loss in the courts, which would have then given them some way to say, look, HB 40 has been ruled on by a court, and this ban is unconstitutional. And we didn't want to hand them Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of legal victory to go along with their, their crass uh, political victory down in Austin. Gotcha. Well, now, so, so, so you, you have uh, voluntarily the city of Denton has voluntarily withdrawn this initiative. Uh, so, what happens next? You now say, uh, Adam Briggle, that this is a, as much about democracy as it is about the environment. What happens next? What's the next step? And how can uh, how can folks who are watching this story from afar help the efforts down there? Because I got to tell you, Adam, it is. It is absolutely mind-blowing, and it is the uh, the inverse of what Republicans have for so many years pretended to give a damn about when it comes to rights, when it comes to democracy, when it comes to uh, e- you know even private property rights and and uh, uh, you know the the voice of local voters. So, what happens next for the city of Denton and uh, and this fight against fracking, uh, and how does this now extend to democracy as you see it? Well, we've got a lot of avenues that we are going to be pushing forward here. So in many ways, this isn't uh, the end of anything so much as it is a a beginning of a much broader struggle here, as you indicated, both for democracy and health and safety. So some of the things we're going to do is build coalitions with grassroots groups and cities across the state of Texas to begin on repealing HB 40. People are interested in electing new leadership down in Austin like they've never been before. This has really awakened a sort of political revolution that's that's in its early phases now. Um, we're going to be, uh, so, several people are still interested in direct action and civil disobedience activities that uh, I myself have taken part in to help raise awareness about this. So we have quite a few uh, avenues going forward. And then also in Denton, you know, we still are, we, we are back to square one with fracking. So we still have now to figure out what we can actually do in the meantime while HB 40 is still the law of the land, what we can do to protect our citizens. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to keep us busy here, and there's a lot to enroll people from around the state and even around the country to help us fight this cause. Does Texas have a provision, uh, a a voter veto uh, sort of provision, that would allow HB 40 to be repealed at the ballot box, or is this just a matter of replacing uh you know uh, state legislators and replacing them and waiting for a repeal to happen in other words is there a way to do it at the ballot box and one of the reasons i ask is because you know i would think that 
actual conservatives, not the pretend ones, not the fake ones, not the liars, uh, pardon me, like your governor, Greg Abbott, who pretends to be a conservative and then does something like this, taking away the rights of, of local small uh, government and, and, and local voters. But I would think that actual real conservatives would be alarmed by this law, would be alarmed by HB 40, and that you might be able to join in a coalition with some of these folks across the state to repeal this at the ballot box. Does that sort of, is that provision available to uh, folks in Texas? Well, I think you're absolutely right about conservatives um, being appalled by what's gone on here. And many of my friends and, and colleagues working on this with me are Republicans and are conservatives, and, you know, they're lockstep with everybody else. Um, but unfortunately, to my knowledge, there is no mechanism by which you could just, through the ballot box, mm. repeal a law like that. I think it has to go through political change in our leadership. Wow, that's a long... I could be wrong about that, but that's what I've been told. I, I hope you're wrong about that, uh, but that because that, that's a long fight, you know, to wait for the next election, to remove the, as many people as you can, to get the uh, a new bill passed, to repeal the old one. So I hope there's a voter, voter veto available for Texans, but frankly, it wouldn't surprise me if there was not... Uh, something like that available, because God forbid we let the actual voters have a say down there in Texas. Um, Professor Briggle, before I let you go, I would be remiss, since you are a, uh, a professor of uh, a focusing on the uh, intersection of ethics and the environment, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, the, the, uh, the Pope has released a remarkable encyclical on the environment on Thursday, uh, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on the effect that that might have, for better or worse, on both your work and uh, on you know the environment and ethics and and the fight for environmental stewardship overall. Yeah, well, I think this is going to have a really positive influence. You know, my my take on Catholicism, and I went to a Catholic uh, college, was that stewardship is a central value, and caring for the natural environment, caring for our fellow creatures, is an essential part of the Catholic tradition and arguably Judeo-Christian identity more deeply ingrained. Mm -hmm. And so to hear the, the Pope uh, articulate those values in, uh, in a climate where I think it's very difficult to make a stand like that is very welcome, and I encourage it. Adam Briggle is an associate professor at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, president of the Grassroots Denton Drilling Awareness Group, and a leader at the Frack Free Denton campaign. Uh, you can get more information on that campaign at frackfreedenton.com, uh, also on the Twitters at Frack Free Denton, and you can follow uh, Adam personally on the Twitters at Adam Briggle. Uh, Adam, great to have you here. Really appreciate your time on uh, on this issue and your fight down there in Denton. Please stay in touch as this fight moves forward. We would like to cover it because I think it's emblematic of uh, you know the fight for uh, you know democracy, frankly, across the country. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, from the fight for a clean Texas to the fight for a clean planet. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast.
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We are running late, so let's get right to it. Our latest Green News report. And I think it's really unique as a statement uh, from Christians on climate change. The Pope's unprecedented call for action on climate change. He has a Marxist background. And the right predictably freaks out. India goes solar in a big way. Plus, global warming is not our big problem. Trump is running for president. It's no hoax, but he thinks global warming is. All of those blessed stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. No, there's no record of Io Papa having studied meteorology or climatology or any of the related sciences. So we're supposed to take his assertions on faith. Yes, Rush. He's the Pope. By definition, you're supposed to take his assertions on faith. Oh, I forgive you. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen. A huge, huge day with the Pope coming out with his encyclical on climate change and the folks on the right, their heads are just exploding. Yeah, they can barely stand it. It's, it's actually kind of funny. Oh, Desi, the Pope would not approve of you uh, laughing at these people like that. Oh, I don't know about that, but let's get on to it. The Vatican has released the official version of the highly anticipated encyclical on the environment written by Pope Francis. An encyclical is a teaching letter, and this one instructs Catholics around the world on the moral, ethical, and religious imperatives to act on climate change and protect the environment. Pope Francis accepts the science of man-made climate change. He says, quote, human beings pollute the water, soil, air. All of these are sins. And he forcefully calls on individuals and governments to act because the poorest people in the world will be hurt first and worst by global warming. Alexei Laushkin, vice president of the Evangelical Environmental Network, says this encyclical is unique in calling for cultural change. The encyclical is calling for a renewed sense of our humanity when it comes to our relationship with God's creation and the way we do business and the way we treat the poor and the way we feel connected with all people. The encyclical written for people of goodwill of every culture. The Pope's encyclical is intended to mobilize international climate treaty talks in Paris later this year. Climate scientists are ecstatic and hope his intervention will be a game changer. But right-wing media is predictably very unhappy with the Pope's big move. Fox News host Greg Gutfield called him a Marxist. He has a Marxist background. Oh, my God. Here we go. And basically so did Rush Limbaugh. But he doesn't even disguise it, folks. In this encyclical, it doesn't even disguise every other word seems to be about how unfettered capitalism is destroying the world and how the rich countries have to give more money to the poor countries to make amends. I mean, that's call it what you want, Marxism, socialism, what have you. I'd call it being a decent person and giving a damn about humanity, which Rush obviously doesn't. Meanwhile, Donald Trump jumps in. On Tuesday, the billionaire and reality TV star announced his intention to seek the 2016 Republican presidential nomination. We've been tracking the climate change positions of all of the official 2016 candidates, and Trump believes the scientific consensus of man-made global warming is a hoax. Here he is last winter on Fox News. This winter is brutal. It's freezing. We, We haven't had a winter like this in a long time. It's not 
the, the, the hoax doesn't bother me if it didn't mean now, anything. Now, what do you mean hoax? Well, it's a hoax. I think the scientists are having a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, they're having a lot of fun. They're just playing around, being silly, those silly scientists. <laughs> Meanwhile, a new report from the UN's International Energy Agency finds that the current commitments from the world's governments to cut emissions are not going to be enough to meet the international treaty goal of keeping the planet from warming more than two degrees Celsius over pre-industrial times. The IEA says there's still time to act by rapidly ramping up renewables and energy efficiency, ending coal use, ending fossil fuel subsidies, and quickly capping emissions of methane. They say that could still get us in under the target. Finally, some good news. I think the Pope thing was good news. Well, you know, yeah, it is. You're right. Some more good news. Good. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced that India is going to increase its investment in solar projects 500%. And that means it will install more solar than Germany this year. Impossible. The right told me that China and India would never go along with renewable energy. I don't think we can control the emissions from China and India, nor do they have any desire to control us. We have statements such as we do have from the leaders in China, in India, in other countries, saying under no circumstances are they going to accept any kind of mandatory reduction. China, India, all these countries that are still growing, and they're not going to stop doing what they're doing. Uh, once again, it seems like they were wrong again. Yep. Imagine that. For much more on all of our stories today and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. You can and should find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, Adam Briggle of FrackFreeDenton.com. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can download it anytime at bradblog.com. You can drop me some email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And, of course, you can find me and follow me and call me all the names you like on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. Until we meet again, you can find me at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>